to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain different perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. Now, this is episode eight, and my guest today is Professor Craig Forces of the University of Ottawa in Canada and a National Security Crisis Law Fellow at the Center on National Security and the Law at Georgetown Law School. Craig is on the executive of the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society, or TSAS, and is a board member and former president of the Canadian Council on International Law. He's the author of the most important treatise on Canadian national security law, and his work, uh, along with Professor Kent Roach of the University of Toronto on national security and human rights, has won various prestigious awards in Canada. He's also well known for his national security blog and podcast called Intrepid, a link to which we'll post on the website. The primary focus of our discussion today is Craig's wonderful book on the Caroline Incident called Destroying the Caroline, the Frontier Raid that Reshaped the Right to War, a book that was recognized with the award for creative scholarship by the American Society of International Law and has won plaudits in a number of other fora. It's a wonderful book that combines a masterful historical account of the incident itself, which will be familiar to all listeners, I'm sure, the diplomatic dispute that gave rise to the famous Caroline Test, a rich intellectual history of exactly how this small incident and diplomatic dispute came to work its way into the development of the Ad Bellum regime and the doctrine of self-defense in particular, and finally, a more theoretical discussion of the implications and significance of the Caroline Test and current understandings of the doctrine of self-defense in Ad Bellum. We cannot really do the book justice in the short time we have here, but hopefully it will whet the appetite of listeners to pick it up. And in addition, we do talk a little bit towards the end of our conversation about Canadian approaches to some of the issues in Ad Bellum, as well as Craig's treatise on Canadian national security law and how that legal regime may differ from national security law in other countries. So with that, let me bring you Craig Forces. Well, Craig Forces, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Craig. The, the double Craig session here. I know, it's the double Craig's, the, the, the <laughs> double Canadian podcast session. <laughs> well, Craig, as you know, uh, from listening to other uh, episodes, before I ask you to launch into the substance, I just wanted you to share something about yourself that even your colleagues probably don't know about you. Yeah. So this is the question I worried most about Craig, because I, I want to come up with something that's genuine and authentic and doesn't sound like an overwrought humble brag, but <laughs> so maybe uh, you know, I'll just give you a bit of an origin story. So my background in terms of my undergraduate university days was split between social science, actually anthropology and then physical geography. So I spent a good portion of my undergraduate day days in the Arctic in the high Arctic studying frozen dirt, actually wow. <laughs> an area of, of physical geography called paraglacial geomorphology. And our focus then was on the implications of permafrost melts stemming from climate change on terrain disturbance in late eighties, 1990s, early 1990s. That was a largely theoretical concern, but of course it's real life now. And so I feel that what I was doing 30 years ago really has a real imprimatur now. But the, the reason I'm telling you this story is that when I got to law school, I sort of had a very technical mindset and I found those areas of law that were logic-based, right? Structured in a logical ways. I, I found them much easier to ingest than say the areas I actually teach now, right? <laughs> the, the public law areas, the administrative law, the constitutional law, and the international law areas, they were so heavily political and so predicated on history that I felt that for a, a lot of my law school days, and ever since, frankly, I've been engaged in sort of a remedial project uh, to understand the context in which these areas of the law arise. And and in consequence, because I have had to work at it so hard, they've become the most fascinating areas for me. And actually, that's probably the origin story for the book we're about to talk about as well, which is so history centric. Well, so that's really interesting. Well, I mean, perhaps we can have you back on the podcast down the road and I can bring you back to your your roots and we can talk about climate change and uh, the Yusad Balam regime. Great. So we could talk about any number of things today because you know, you're an expert in national security and all things uh, related to national security in Canada. But as some of our listeners are well aware, you're the author of this magnificent book, Destroying the Caroline, the Frontier Raid that Reshaped the Right to War, published a couple of years ago. And frequent listeners will know that uh, the book's already been 
recommended by one of our earlier guests. What they may not know is that it was awarded a certificate of merit for preeminent contribution to creative scholarship by the American Society of International Law. And of course, the book is an analysis of the famous Caroline incident uh, and how it it is used and misused in current arguments and debates uh, over the doctrine of self-defense. And as you know, I've reviewed the book and I think it's fantastic, but it'll be a challenge, I think, for us to do it justice in one short podcast episode. But I was thinking that one way to sort of work our way into it is perhaps to just start with the history and have you give us a thumbnail sketch of the history of the incident, but also why it is that you say, as sort of as a theme that runs all the way through the book, that that history is really important and that the mischaracterization of that history is significant to our understanding of public international law today. Yeah, well, thanks uh, very much, Craig, and thanks for your kind words about the book. This, this was a fun book to write in the sense that, like many lawyers, I spend most of my life writing on contemporary topics. And if you're writing a book, especially a treatise or a textbook, you find your life uh, involves a lot of uh, updating, and that's much less interesting than writing something for the first time. And, and so this was my opportunity to have a project that, that dug deep on history in the hopes that I'll never have to do a second edition of it again. So it was, <laughs> it was, a, it was actually a lot of Fun, and it was a lot of fun because the story is actually a really interesting one. And it's a story that has been conveyed, I think, probably to law students studying international law for generations, but in a very truncated manner. Right. And, and I was actually able to trace how some of the key facts fell off the agenda through textbooks through the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it was an interesting intellectual history as well as a swashbuckling uh, history of an event that took place on the Niagara River in 1837. So. Uh, just to give you your listeners a bit of context. So uh, back in the 1830s, there was a fractious relationship between the United States and what was then British North America. Of course, the history of the relationship between those two territories, the, the British and the United States fought a revolutionary war and then the War of 1812. And in the 1830s, there was still certainly on the frontier, uh, at least on the American side, an animus towards the presence of British administration uh, just north of the border. And there was also in the Canadian, what was what became Canada, what was called Upper Canada at the time, there was also a significant, I'll call it a Republican, a Republican sentiment, uh, because a substantial amount of the population had actually entered Upper Canada, what's now Ontario, as United Empire loyalists, right? So they're the villains and shows like Turn for American listeners, right? They're heroes up here, but they were duly paying taxpayers who thought that they should continue to pay tax to the British crown. Anyway, they ended up in Upper Canada, but by British standards, they were fairly Republican in their views about how governance should work in a colony. And they wanted to have a colony that had, well, we would call it a democratic representation, which was not necessarily the view the British had. And so there was political tension that culminated in 1837 and in an uprising. It was led by a man by the name of William Lyon Mackenzie. It was quickly quashed, but Mackenzie fled across the Niagara River to Buffalo. And there, with the support of, of Americans who called themselves self-styled patriots, Mackenzie planned and then executed an invasion of a small island on the Canadian side of the Niagara River called Navy Island. And for visitors to Niagara Falls, when we're next able to actually go anywhere and visit places <laughs> post-COVID, you can still find uh, Navy Island still there. It's a bit reduced in size because of erosion over the years. But it was on the Canadian side of the border. And so he was occupying, uh, as uh, we would now call a non-state actor, an insurgent, uh, this territory within Canada. And from that territory began to shell the mainland of Canada with munitions, in fact, that he acquired from New York state militia. And there's some debate as to whether that was with the willing assistance of the New York state militia or whether they were turning a blind eye. And so by December of 1837, there was a fairly substantial force on Navy Island. And on the uh, evening of December 29th, the British and Canadian militia on the on the mainland side of the Niagara River spied sailing down from Buffalo, a steamer called the Caroline. Now, this was problematic for a number of reasons, not least that with a steamer, the insurgents would be better equipped to cross the Niagara River, which, as people know, is a fast flowing river. And, and then before the dams, it was much faster in its its flow. And so th this was a, a real strategic change in the circumstances. And so that evening, under the command of a, of a half-pay British naval officer, that is someone who had been in the Napoleonic Wars, had emigrated to Canada, and, and now had taken up command of the, 
British naval flotilla uh, uh, that was contesting Mackenzie's occupation of Navy Island, man by the name of Andrew Drew, whose history is like something from Hornblower. It's like, it's just great history, right? Uh, so he decided that the time was ripe to steal across the Niagara River and to send the Caroline to its destruction for fear that this occupation of Navy Island would both continue and the fortification of that island would be enhanced because of the presence of the steamer. And then the steamer would be used to ferry insurgents onto the mainland. So off they went across the Niagara River, almost swept over the falls, according to Drew's own account. And late that night, they in fact took the Caroline from its berth on the New York state side of the river. There was some controversy subsequently as to how many people might have been killed in this firefight. Thereafter, they, the American authorities were only able to establish that one person was killed, and there was some doubt as to whether he was killed by the British or by friendly fire, but ultimately took the Caroline, they set it up alight, and they released it from its berth, and it went, there's famous uh, paintings right. of this. Some of the paintings are, are quite uh, farcical in the sense they suggest the boat totally uh, engulfed in flame, went over the Niagara Falls in its full glory, but in fact, it, it fell apart before it got to the falls, and the engine actually was visible at the top of the falls for some time, several generations afterwards. But the better part of the superstructure of the boat went off over the falls. And, and uh, so the Caroline was then dispatched and it no longer presented this, this infernal challenge to British administration of, of Upper Canada. Now, this precipitated an enormous diplomatic controversy, in, in part because it was viewed as a violation of American neutrality. And so the Americans had said, look, we were neutral in this conflict. We think there's a civil war ongoing in Upper Canada. The British view on this was that, well, that's, that's nonsense. The, the problem here was that an insurgent force, which was predominantly American by the time of December 29th, 1837, an insurgent force had from the United States invaded part of the territory of Canada and was shelling other parts of the territory of Canada. And more than that, you had done nothing, the United States, to, to forestall this invasion. And moreover, there's some reason to believe that you were tacitly conspiring, at least at the state level. And this is a period of, of as American listeners will know, of, of controversy between the federal and state governments as to their relative authorities. So state rights was a, a rallying cry in this period in U.S. history. And in fact, thereafter, in some of the diplomatic correspondence, the British actually used, actually used the expression, the United States was unwilling or unable to prevent this insurgency. And therefore we were well within our rights to invade what was otherwise neutral territory. The United States had lost its neutrality in order to engage in an act of self-help and dispatch the Caroline. And so I can go into further detail as to why this controversy festered for an additional five years until 1842. But in the course of this diplomatic correspondence back and forth, one of the positions articulated, the US position, was made by Daniel Webster, U.S. Secretary of State at the time, who articulated this passage, and we can talk about the content of this passage in a moment, this passage that contains the elements of what we would now call the inherent right of self-defense and custom international law. And for reasons, largely accidents of history, that passage takes on uh, a status in the, the secondary literature, the treatises, the textbooks, such that by the time we get to the post-war period in the 20th century, when the concept of self-defense becomes enormously important as one of the few remaining justifications for use of force in international law, the jurists of the post-Second World War period reach back into these histories and they find this passage from Daniel Webster waiting as a means to define this otherwise undefined concept of self-defense. So that's a, that's a little bit of the origin story and hopefully that's enough to germinate some thoughts. Right. I mean, there's so many questions that we could weigh into on this, but I guess a starting point would be, as you indicated in, in the introduction of your comments, a lot of the important facts have been stripped away. And so most listeners, even students who are taking public international law and come across the Caroline incident in the use of force class will know that the Caroline formulation, you know, the necessity of that self-defense is instant, overwhelming, and leaving no choice of means, no moment deliberation, both suggests in it in his very language, but more importantly, has been latched onto as a justification for anticipatory self-defense, right. right? And what I thought was really quite interesting about your very detailed discussion of the history, and then your you know, very rich 
exploration of the intellectual history of how this formulation influences the development of international law in the late 19th and early 20th century is that so many of the important facts get shorn away, including, and most, perhaps most importantly, the fact that there was an ongoing and continuing armed attack in process, right? So this was, there was nothing anticipatory about the British action against the Carolina or against the insurgents. This was a response to an ongoing, first of an invasion and then an ongoing attack in the form of the shelling. So perhaps we could just start with that. And at some point, we'll find our way back to the unwilling or unable doctrine, which you know is dear and near to my heart. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I think that's a great point. So you're right. I mean, so the Caroline, when it's invoked, usually is invoked as a justification or uh, depending on the audience and who's invoking it uh, as a limitation on the anticipatory use of self-defense. And so, again, depending on who's speaking, the idea that you can mount a forceful response even before you suffer the blow of an armed attack. Well, you can extract that premise from Webster's language. And in fact, Webster, in, in some of the language around imminence, really was drawing on a natural law tradition that goes back to the classic jurists of the 17th and 18th century, the Vitales and Grotius and others, who saw that there was this inherent right of self-defense, and they actually used the natural law concept of self-defense in relation to an individual, not a state. They're actually drawing on individual rights of self-defense right. that, that basically said, if you're in the forest and someone's pointing a gun at you, you don't have to wait for the bullet to be fired before you can act. So there was this, indisputably, there was this concept of anticipatory self-defense, which was embedded in the natural law understanding of international law of the era. And I would underscore that natural law at that time was still a legitimate basis for, in terms of a source, it was a legitimate source of international law. We're right at that cusp of the 19th century shift away from natural law to positivism. And so natural law was authority. And so yes, Webster invokes it, but of course the facts don't fit the invocation. And you're absolutely right that by the time that the British militia under Commander Drew crossed the Niagara River in late December of 1837. Navy Island, again, Canadian territory, had been occupied for over two weeks and there had been ongoing shelling. And no, the shelling didn't amount to much. The mainland side of the Niagara River was actually relatively densely populated, but the shells, the, the six pounders of the era weren't tremendously effective across that gap in the river. But there was shelling and there was an indisputable occupation and of course, an accelerating occupation, more and more so-called patriots were moving to Navy Island. This had been going on for two weeks. And by the standard of today, I would think that most people confronted with the facts as they existed in December 1837 would conclude that this was enough to cross the threshold to an armed attack. And I know that's what constitutes an armed attack is a whole conversation in its own right. But I think, you know, probably what the facts were enough to satisfy most people's concept of armed attack. So we had an ongoing armed attack to which the British then responded by crossing the river and dispatching the Caroline. There was nothing anticipatory in, in the modern sense of the word about the British conduct. Now, what's interesting is that one of the things that went wrong in terms of the intellectual history here, and, and you see this in, in some of the textbooks, even from the early 20th century. So if you look at some of the British textbooks, for whatever reason, the textbook writers, at least some of them came to the conclusion that Navy Island was actually on the US side of the border. Right. And so that matters. Right. So that matters if you've got no occupation and the shelling. No one seemed to know about that. I mean, I had to go back into the archives and I found all the contemporary records, including dispatches from the lieutenant governor of Upper Canada to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office or then Foreign Office, Colonial Office, saying that, you know, the shelling had been ongoing. That little piece of information was nowhere found in the digests that were later reproduced in these 19th century textbooks. So the omission of the shelling fact, coupled with the confusion about the territorial status of Navy Island, were important facts, I think, in driving people to the conclusion that there was something, well, there was something anticipatory, even preemptive about the dispatch of the Caroline. Right. And so another aspect that I thought was really interesting about the significance of this incident in the development of jurisprudence and the intellectual sort of history that exercises influence on the development of international law, even in the late 19th century, is why is it that this incident sort of captures the imagination mm -hmm. of jurists, scholars, historians, when, as you actually point out in some detail in the book, 
there are these other incidents that are going on on the American continent in the Americas in which the roles are entirely reversed. The United States is in the Seminole War arguing that the Spanish are unwilling or unable to take action against indigenous bands and therefore the United States is entirely entitled to go in and, and use force. And similarly, there are events within a year of the Caroline incident in Mexico, right, in, in Texas, actually. And I think you, you're probably uh, familiar with Alonzo Gramendi's blog post where he, he talks about the other Caroline and points out that it's really kind of interesting that the Caroline incident captures the imagination, as you point out, sort of becomes the, the basis for the development of a modern doctrine of self-defense, or at least helps to shape the scope of the doctrine of self-defense. And yet these other incidents uh, in which the roles are entirely reversed and the United States is arguing exactly the opposite position within a year of the Caroline incident have sort of subsided into the, the mists of time and have never heard of. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and again, I think it's more an accident of history than any kind of logic. So I'm sorry to sound like Oliver Wendell Holmes, right? The life of the law is, <laughs> is history and not logic. And I think that's very true. And it's especially true, as we all know, in international law. I think a lot of it has to do with those who retold the story of the Caroline. And so, you know, one of the figures who doesn't get mentioned much these days, but I think played a, an important role in propagating the story of the Caroline is Robert Joseph Philemer, who became very famous for admiralty law, but also was the author of a very influential 19th century treatise on public international law that was fairly dominant in the UK context and was influential within sort of an Anglo-American view of public international law. And the irony here is that Robert uh, Joseph Fillmore actually penned, I'll call it an open letter, to Ashburton, who was the British negotiator involved in settling the Caroline dispute with the Americans, in which he outlined in much greater detail than did the United States or Daniel Webster, a view on both unwilling or unable and also the scope of self-defense that pertained in a dispute like that. And so his writing on this area is forgotten. And yet Daniel Webster's passage, which is much pithier, I have to say, I mean, it, right. it's like, I call it a meme, right? Yeah, and and yeah. in the classic sense, not like the internet sense, but a you know, self-propagating idea. So Daniel Webster's passage is, is pithy. And so it, it works as a self-propagating idea. But Philomer articulated a very, very similar vision. And he wrote the textbooks right. thereafter that proved so influential. And so in the 19th century, we now move forward into the 20th century. And what happens in the 20th century is while the Caroline in the 19th century was sort of almost an afterthought, right? It was in the 19th century because law, law did not ban war. I mean, war was perfectly lawful, as you know. The preoccupation there was more diplomatic justifications for use of force measures short of war. And so these sorts of circumstances where you're chasing an insurgency into a neutral territory, I mean, these sorts of stories like the Caroline were, were used for those sorts of purposes. But because there was an invocation of this concept of self-defense used in that context, and this, this word self-defense became increasingly important and replaced a broader concept of what was known as self-preservation by the 20th century, we get to a point where the scope in which states can lawfully use force narrows, right? So they narrow with the League of Nations covenant and they narrow further with Kellogg-Briand pact. And then we get to the charter, the UN charter and, and the ratchet closes the door to anything other than self-defense beyond the Security Council authorization. And so right. all of a sudden we've got this concept of self-defense, which diplomats and jurists to that point had emphatically sought not to define. Right. right. And so you can find that I think it's one of the points that you may have made in some of your scholarship, because I recall reading it, is that even in the Kellogg-Briand context or before that in the League of Nations, jurists and diplomats were concerned that if they define self-defense categorically, they would provide a roadmap for states to steer their aggression so that it lay within the confines of that justification. And so there's this reluctance to define self-defense in diplomatic practice. And so what are you left with? Right. You're left with these 19th century uh, treatises, you know, and a repetition into the 20th century where self-defense is used in these idiosyncratic circumstances of which the Caroline was probably the best preserved. Right. And so we get then to the post-war period and people suddenly need to reach for something that defines self-defense. And the first entity to reach for a definition of self-defense really is the 
Nuremberg proceedings, right? And so you had the invasion of Norway by Germany, and that was one of the proceedings uh, in which Nazi accused were were tried for violations against peace. And the Nazi accused said, well, we only invaded Norway because we thought the allies, the British in particular, were preemptively going to occupy Norway to prevent us from having access to Norwegian resources. And so that's why we went in. And what did they cite? They cited the Caroline. And so the Nuremberg proceedings, they analyzed Webster's phrase. And in Webster's phrase, they said, look, this is where the issue of anticipatory arises, really. And they said, look, it wasn't really anticipatory. You're just using that as a pretext. There was nothing really that you were doing that was anticipatory. This was simply an act of aggression. And you're just invoking self-defense as a, in a pretextual manner. And so that's the first kind of major benchmark post-war you have. And thereafter, it's picked up by the textbook writers and the great treatise writers and, and takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Which is fascinating in its own right. It's one of the things that I think that you, you deal with so interestingly in the book, which is this question of why should this incident be significant, right? So a number of scholars have pointed out, as you just said, that there was no prohibition on the use of force at the time, and therefore that you needed no justification sounding in self-defense for a use of force. So why is it that we should use the formulation that crops up in the diplomatic dispute in that incident to shape and inform our definition of self-defense after there is a prohibition on the use of force. I mean, it seems rather odd. And just going back to the, the previous discussion of like all of these other incidents that involve similar uses of force in which descriptions and accounts of rights of self-preservation or self-defense were entirely different or entirely ignored. And so you have this one incident sort of by happenstance and sort of fate uh, by having been picked up. And as you say, having had the good fortune of been expressed in a very pithy, meme-like formulation by Webster, exercises this outlandish influence on the development of uh, law almost 100 years later. Yeah, I, mean, I think that critique is fair, although I wouldn't want to overstate it. So, so first of all, in the UN Charter Article 51 context, there's an invocation of an inherent right of self-defense sure. as if something already existed, even prior to the formal limitations that were imposed in the UN Charter. And so there is a concept of self-defense. It's almost like you know, pornography or the US Supreme Court's definition of obscenity. You know, we'll know it when we see it. We're just not going to define it. Um, so there's this invocation of self-defense as if it already exists which then begs the question, well, what does it mean? And, and just to recall that the concept that was being invoked by Webster, it, it, he didn't pull it from the ether, right? He didn't sure. make it up. Again, it had this an entrenchment in natural law. There was this rich natural law understanding of what constituted self-defense. And you can actually trace some of the concepts back to Cicero. Right. And so this wasn't just invented from the ether. The, the, the question then becomes, well, should something that has its origin in natural law matter in terms of the formation of subsequent custom. And I know some of the critiques of the Caroline say, well, it's not custom international law. There wasn't enough state practice with the Pinot Juris at the time. And that's true, although, you know, I, I keep thinking of the, the, the notion of intertemporal law. Well, yeah, it may not matter according to the current doctrine around the custom international law and its formation. But back in 1837, natural law still mattered, right? And so right. I'm not going to get into sort of a, an effort to superimpose the standards for custom international law on, on what might have mattered in 1837. So then the question becomes, so has it met the standards of custom international law in the present day? And, and here I get oh, maybe a little bit cynical. Maybe I'll put it more formally. I'm a legal realist, right? So part of my problem, Craig, is that I, I teach also an, an international relations program. Um, and so I, I tend to be very preoccupied with the politics of international law and maybe a little bit more skeptical of the doctrine. And maybe I'll share with you actually a passage I found, which really reflects my view of how custom international law really works, right? <laughs> so we know the doctrine, state practice with a pedo juris. Well, here's a passage from a textbook that I discovered while writing this book in, from 1918 and describing the way in which custom international law works. And so this passage says, customary law flows from the free practice of states then replicated as other nations are led from motives of convenience or from the pressure of moral compulsion by their stronger neighbors to adopt the same practice. And at the last <laughs> stage, the particular rule has obtained sufficient standing to be quoted as a precedent for guidance in subsequent cases. Right. So that's not doctrine. I mean, we know that's nonsense from a doctrinal perspective. But really, when we look at how custom international law really works in the world, is that not a more apt descriptor? 
maybe I'm getting into dangerous terrain here because I know you've had someone on recently <laughs> who was focusing on custom international law, but as from a legal realist perspective, that sounds a lot like the way it seems to work, which then begs the question, is that why the Caroline is so important? Because those writers in powerful countries who in the U.S. context might be scholars and professors one day, but then exercise influence within the administration the next day because of the way that the United States operates or the equivalent in the UK who have had dominance in this field for so long, if they believe that the Caroline is, is public international law, it's customary. Does that make it in fact, for all intents and purposes, the rule that applies? Well, I mean, my view is it's hard actually to dispute that. Right. And it doesn't line up with doctrine very well, but you know, the practical reality of the way these things work, the states that use force tend to define what it is they will accept as a limitation on that force. So let's sort of explore that a little further, because the last part of the book, and just for listeners who haven't uh, read it yet, let me just say that first part of the book is really an exploration of the history of the events, the history of the diplomatic dispute. And we should just mention, I think, that we've sort of glossed over the fact that the initial dispute isn't really over the event. Right. The diplomatic dispute erupts several years later when a Canadian is arrested and, and is going to be tried for the murder of the alleged victim on the Caroline. And right. that's when there, there's a risk of war and there's this real dis- diplomatic spat between the United States and Britain. And this is when the exchange of, of letters gives rise to this pithy formulation. And, and for those who haven't read the book and who are interested in the unwilling or unable doctrine, let me just say like there is gold in the account of this diplomatic dispute because Ashburton's letters, not as pithy, but has some wonderful language about the unwilling or unable doctrine. You know, you're reading it and thinking, wait, this was in 1837? This sounds like it was in 2013. But so the first part of the book is is the history of the event, the history of the, the diplomatic dispute, and some analysis of who you think got it right, according to the law at the time. Then there's a, this really rich history of the intellectual history of the development of the, the doctrine and the development of international law and the influence that the, the events exercise on that development. But then the last part of the book, you really sort of get into, okay, so how does the Caroline continue to exercise influence today? Mm. And you know, from my book review, this is where I was like, no, but I want more detail <laughs> and I want more analysis. And by the way, I think I disagree with you. So maybe we can see, we can dig into some of that. And this is precisely where I think that the the Caroline is misused in the unwilling or unable doctrine. And particularly, I thought, you know, we, you might've explored more. And when I say that, I just preface that by saying like, I recognize there would have been huge trade-offs because there was this awesome history, which for, again, for listeners who haven't read the book, it is a swashbuckling history. I mean, it's, it's one of the few international law textbooks that is a page turner and reads like a pirate novel in parts. And so it would have been difficult to also have engaged in detailed analysis of the concept of eminence, but let's do that here. (laughs) So it strikes me that you're very generous, I thought, in your defense of the Caroline formulation and saying, look, there's some constructive ambiguity in how it's developed. and, And you're, I think, as a realist, saying, look, that constructive ambiguity has served it well. It's allowed for some given the joints. And yes, it allows perhaps greater violation in the margins than it might otherwise, but a a more rigid and clearer definition of the scope of of self-defense would have been counterproductive precisely because countries would have just simply quite blatantly violated it and undermined its normative power. So I thought you were quite generous in this way. And I take the point, but it is now being used in or misused, I think, in ways that are entirely gutting the concept of imminence of all temporal meaning in order to support the unwilling or enable doctrine. And as you point out in the book, the Caroline incident is one of the first modern instances of unwilling or unable, in which that language is actually used by the British, saying you're unwilling or unable to deal with this threat emanating from your territory, and therefore we are entitled to use force. So let's perhaps just dig into that, and maybe I'll just pass it over to you to get started on the concept of imminence and how Caroline should inform our understanding of imminence. Yeah, and, and thanks for that, Craig. And, and I think your criticisms and your review were, were well taken. I agree completely that I, I I'm going to say equivocate 
on resolving contemporary debates on these issues, in part because I didn't see that as my mission, but but more than that, because I'm not sure that there's a definitive way of resolving those debates. Uh, and so I, I saw my mission is, is telling a story and, and showing how that intellectual history influences current thinking, but has opened the door to uncertainty in relation, especially to this area of imminence. So let's, let's talk about imminence first, right? So the facts don't fit. We've already made that point. The facts don't right. fit for the Caroline being the source of at least state practice surrounding, surrounding the idea of anticipatory self-defense. And in fact, the irony here is that if you look, for example, at the U.S. pleadings, I believe it was U.S. versus Iran at the ICJ, the case involving the Vicens, that there the U.S. position was that the Caroline only applied in circumstances where it was anticipatory. It didn't apply to any other kind of self-defense circumstance, That's interesting. which is like, which is a flipping the facts on their head, right? Right. So the question then becomes, well, so let's take Webster's passage and, and the concept of imminence. And you know, well, there's not a lot of resolution there, right? I mean, it's like one passing reference to no moment for deliberation, et cetera, as a standard for, for imminence. And so does that impose enough of a constraint or is there so much wiggle room that you can have the Caroline being invoked, say, prior to the 2003 Iraq war as it was, as a justification for what we call the Bush Doctrine, right? A draconian sort of preemptive form of self-defense, even further removed temporally from what we've been talking about so far in terms of anticipatory self-defense. Yeah, absolutely. It's been putty in the hands of proponents of quite broad understandings of when self-defense can be used, even prior to an armed attack. And so the question is, well, can we lay the blame at the foot of the Caroline formulation, which I think is your point. And I guess my answer would be, well, we could easily conceive uh, a more limiting understanding of self-defense. You and I probably in the course of a few minutes could postulate some language that would limit the scope of when force can be used. And maybe you and I would agree that there's a narrow temporal window before you suffer the blow of an armed attack, what Yoram Dinsting might call interceptive self-defense. And that would be acceptable. But further out from that, then it becomes more problematic. Maybe we could put in place some formulation that captured that temporal window. And that could be kind of a definitive formulation. So if we came up with that formal definition, the question then becomes, will it simply die? Because as you suggested, states in the exercise of their supreme security interest will simply ignore that formulation. Um, and right. so the whole concept of self-defense being a limiting concept risks being thrown out because my fear would be if it's too strict, you undermine the legitimacy of self-defense as a limiter on use of force because it becomes a suicide pact in, in the view of states that, that feel that they must use force. And so do you want to build in some pliability? And this is a debate. I mean, people have come down different ways on this debate, and I canvas some of those views in the book. I'm on the flexibility side, and the analogy I draw is it's not my own. It's, it's really something that amongst others, Marty Koskinemi has raised, which is to view international law as a grammar, which structures the way that states, well, to pursue the analogy, speak or in truth act. It's a, a grammar that structures their behavior. But like any grammar, it doesn't necessarily control their vocabulary. Right. And so it's not so prescriptive that it dictates that certain things are said at certain times. My fear would be that if you have so restrictive a grammar that superimposes a structure that states will simply depart from that grammar, they'll start using slang, if you will. And as we all know, especially for the English language, right? You slang enough and it becomes the vernacular. Right. So that's a poor analogy, but, but this goes to this question of real politic. And so I, as international lawyers, and I share this propensity, I'd love to have rules that, that bound that are bright line rules. I'm just not sure they would work very well. Right. Yeah, so the episode that uh, we're going to be issuing later this week, you know, I, I was speaking with Monica Hakimi, who has written this article on informal regulation in the USAID Bauman, and makes similar sorts of arguments, but her work is looking more specifically at informal regulation flowing from the interactions at the Security Council, where the Security Council doesn't approve a use of force, but kind of gives a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, so endorsement of action. And that she's arguing like that has to be understood as being part of the USAID BOEM. But, you know, in an earlier episode, which you may have heard, listened to, Adil Hawk looks at 
the drafting history of the charter. And it's really fascinating that in that history, in the negotiations, the United States was taking the position that anticipatory self-defense was entirely prohibited and was not contemplated by Article 51. And so when Article 51 speaks of an inherent right of self-defense, which you've alluded to, you know, it's true that there had been a reluctance to define self-defense. And that goes back to the Kellogg-Briand Pact. When Kellogg-Briand Pact was being negotiated, the French foreign minister sought the inclusion of the right of self-defense in the American said, no, 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 no. And they, in fact, drafted side letters to include the right of self-defense is not actually included in the treaty itself at all. And it doesn't define what self-defense is. So I I take the point that there is this sort of this notion of self-defense out there. But I guess the question is whether in the context of the charter and a clear language of Article 51, which does not contemplate anticipatory self-defense at all, why is it that we should reach back to the Caroline and the pithy meme of Daniel Webster, which suggests some right of anticipatory self-defense, that, that self-defense may be exercised when there's no moment for deliberation, mm-hmm. and suggests that it may be just in advance of the armed attack. When the language of 51 doesn't contemplate this, when the drafters didn't understand it to mean that, and moreover, and more importantly, the problem is that now the Caroline doctrine is being abused to not only contemplate anticipatory self-defense when there's no moment for deliberation, but rather in the language of the white paper that justifies the killing of Anwar al-Alaki, or even for that matter, in the formulation of the unwilling or unable doctrine in uh, the Bethlehem principles, imminence now becomes a concept that doesn't have any relationship with time, right? It doesn't have to be immediate. There doesn't have to be evidence of, of a particular attack. We don't even have to know where the attack is going to be, what the nature of the attack is. We just simply have to know there's going to be an attack sometime. And that comes within the scope of the concept of imminence. Or to, to go back to the Bush doctrine, they use the concept of risk to replace imminence. So if the magnitude of the harm is great enough and the probability of it realization is great enough, the product of magnitude of harm and probability of occurrence equals imminence. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, there's no temporal aspect to it at all. Yeah. Well, so I, I guess I would have a couple of responses. And, and first, I do not think that the current status of public international law permits anything close to preemptive self-defense. I do not believe that it reaches even anticipatory self-defense, although I am sort of on team Tom Ruse, who in his book on armed attack in the Article 51 context, says, yeah, there, you know, there is some state practice to suggest that something that there might be an emerging concept of anticipatory self-defense, but I would not say that it, its current status is custom international law. I do accept, however, there is such a thing as interceptive self-defense, right? So the classic right. scenario of the missile that's been fired, uh, but for the intervention of the state, there's, there's nothing standing in the way of that, of that missile's flight in it and the and suffering the harm of the armed attack. You don't have to wait for the harm, right? but the, the last step to initiate that harm has to have been taken. I think that works. And I think that works in the Caroline formulation. So my view right. of the Caroline formulation would be interceptive. Yes. And in fact, I think that works in an article 51 armed attack occurs. Well, armed attack, you know, what's, what's the first component of the armed attack, you know, pulling the trigger, not right. necessarily feeling the bullet. Right? right. And so I think it's within the grammatical context of armed attack occurs. And I think it's also consistent with negotiating history. And you're thinking of, the passage in the U.S. delegation's uh, transcript, where, which talks about Pearl Harbor. So at what point could the United States respond to the ship steaming towards Pearl Harbor? And there's this discussion about, you know, can they attack them when they're in the harbor in Tokyo and on routes or, you know, what has to happen? And the American delegation, you're right, said, no, no, you have to actually wait for the attack to start. So there was certainly that contemplated in the discussions around Article 51. So I think interceptive self-defense is, is fine, but I, I share your skepticism about anticipatory and I am hostile to the idea of anything like preemptive. And I think that's consistent with the Caroline, right? But that's my view of the Caroline. And, right. and you're right. That other people have used the Caroline in different ways to ratchet open that, that temporal element or to even abandon the temporal element. Right. And, and you're right, the Bethlehem principles, even the, the drone killing by the UK, by the RAF, 
in, in 20, I believe it was 2015 of the two persons in Syria or Iraq that were plotting terrorist attacks in the UK. And then there, the Caroline was debated. Well, you know, really? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that gets into necessity as well. And so the further out in time it goes, the less chance that you can demonstrate necessity. There's more intervening time and therefore right. there's more prospect that other means are available to stop that armed attack before it arises. So the further out temporally you go, the more you row, not just the imminence requirement, but the more you cast in doubt that other aspect of customary self-defense, which has been recognized by the ICJ regularly, right? So here there's no dispute necessity. Right. right. And so, I mean, this is most unfortunate where I think we're arguing ourselves into agreement, which is no fun. <laughs> but um, but I, I tend to think that imminence is actually a subset of the principle of necessity. The immediacy is sort of is part and parcel of necessity. Mm-hmm. And it's precisely for that reason that as you start to get further out, if you do accept, and I agree with you, I think Tom Roos and Joram Dinstein sort of distinguish between this on the spectrum, there's sort of preventative or preemptive, and then people confuse these two terms, but I'll use preventative self-defense bush doctrine at one end of the spectrum. And typically people talk about anticipatory self-defense at the other end of the spectrum, but they've even gone further to the left of that and said there's an interceptive self-defense. And I think that that you're quite right, that the interceptive self-defense that in the formulation of Tom Ruiz fits Article 51, fits uh, a very narrow reading of the Caroline and satisfies most ideas of the doctrine of self-defense. But it is part and parcel of the idea of necessity. As you move out temporally, I mean, the, the idea of necessity is that there's no other alternative, that the use of force is a last resort to prevent the armed attack from, from occurring or from continuing. And as you get further out, there are more alternatives available to you. I mean, there has to be. I guess the one sort of intuition that underlies some of the scholarship on the unwilling or unable doctrine, and even in the Bethlehem principles, is this idea of sort of the last where the window of opportunity is closing, you know, the last clear chance. And I think it's poorly formulated. And I think that often the problem is that it sort of shares some characteristics with the ticking time bomb hypothetical in the torture debate in that it assumes facts that can never be proved. But in its very strictest sense, I think that there is some validity to the the intuition that there are going to be situations where the attack itself may be not immediate and not imminent in the normal sense of that word, but where the opportunity to prevent a absolutely inevitable attack is closing. And so the requirement or the necessity for action is in fact imminent, is immediate, right? So that I accept. But the other, I think, element of the doctrine of self-defense that you sort of touched on in the book that we haven't really explored, but maybe we could just skirt around a little bit is the issue of armed attack. So you, you mentioned in your discussion of the, the actual facts of the case that it was clearly the case at the time that the bombardment, the invasion of Navy Island, the bombardment of the, of the Canadian shore would have constituted an armed attack. But of course, yet again, in the context of the unwilling or unable doctrine and the global war on terror, there has been a dilution of what constitutes an armed attack, the argument that a series of attacks, no one of which would rise to the level of armed attack, could in the aggregate constitute an armed attack. And this was, again, raised most recently in the Soleimani strike, where it was alleged that Iranian-backed militias had engaged in a number of uh, missile strikes against bases in Iraq, no one of which might have risen to the level of armed attack, but in the aggregate constituted an armed attack. And again, the Caroline isn't invoked as much for this proposition, but it gets, I think, tied into these kinds of arguments. So so I thought maybe you might have some thoughts on that as well. Yeah. So the challenge here, of course, is often one of fact, right? So setting aside the doctrine, the question becomes one of fact. And I I don't think that the concept of armed attack inherently precludes the idea of accumulation of events collectively amounting to an armed attack. The question, though, is what event counts and over what time frame? And so that becomes a contested issue of both fact and I assume also law in terms of understanding what armed attack is. And I don't have an answer for you. I don't, I don't know that I can say definitively, uh, and of course, to say anything definitively in custom international law would require me to do an exhaustive analysis of state practice with a penal jurist, which we 
rarely do, although I'll give a shout out to those, especially on places like Just Security, where there's an effort to accumulate state practice and these incidences occur. I think that's an enormous resource. But the bottom line is we tend to look at what other people are saying and cite each other in a sort of a circular pattern. And that comes back to my definition of how custom really works, right? That there are influencers, to use an internet term, who tend to seem to have a disproportionate impact. And so, you know, this parlance about pinprick, there's a fair amount of uptake on that, right? And you're starting to see, at least for those states willing to use force, there's comfort with that, as there is with unwilling or unable in various formulations, right? So there, I know that there's some some nuance around, for example, the use of force in Syria and the various statements that have been made by NATO members in terms of their justification for the non-consensual use of force on Syrian territory. Some states are more willing to embrace emphatically the idea of unwilling or or unable, and others are a little bit more cagey about it. But, you know, there's an emerging comfort, again, within a narrow subset of the international community. So the question then becomes, when does it become custom? As a matter of doctrine, that's probably not enough, especially given the sort of vigorous dissent from uh, another subset of the international community, not least the Latin American states who have been fairly consistent right. in, in denouncing this as a doctrine. From a doctrinal perspective, I, I'm but doubtful that unwilling or unable has the state practice with the Pino Juris to be a part of custom international law. On the other hand, you know, it, it comes back to the real politic. And what really constitutes custom if on the, the on the ground reality is the states that use force are comfortable using it? Right. There's no doubt that, as you say, I mean, the Americans, the British, the Israelis, the Australians, strangely enough. Canadians. Well, so that was my next question. So Canadians, you know, in their Article 51 letter to the Security Council surrounding the use of force in Syria, did cite the unwilling or unable doctrine, which was quite surprising to me because that seemed to be rather inconsistent with Canada's typical position on these kinds of issues in international law. But I'm wondering if you have any more insight into into the Canadian position on the doctrine. Well, more than just simply citing unwilling or unable in the letter to the UN Security Council, the Minister of Defense at the time, Jason Kenney, gave a textbook perfect analysis of unwilling or unable in the press conference announcing Canada's use of force on Syrian territory. This is when Canada was dispatching CF-18s as part of the coalition bombing mission against ISIS. Canada is a little bit different than other jurisdictions in the sense that sometimes the views, the official views of the government of Canada on contentious issues of international law are held close to the chest. Canada doesn't want to have that much of an air gap between us and our allies. And sometimes a little bit of constructive ambiguity is helpful. (laughs) And so it's very difficult to extract what Canada's position is on some of these points of contention. This is one area where Canada was forthright and in part because I suppose it had to be if it was going to use force on the territory of Syria, it had to articulate a legal justification and was willing to do so. And so it's pretty clear that at least under the last government, and this would have been a conservative government back right. in 2015, they were very comfortable with this doctrine. And, you know, there's a fair amount of comfort within the Judge Advocate General's office on this concept, whether it's shared within the Department of Foreign Affairs or Justice. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not privy to that, that conversation. So this circles back to the idea that there is, I'm not going to call it a groundswell, but there is, there's more willingness on the part of states confronted with the hard dilemmas. And it is a hard dilemma, right, from a policy perspective. Why should a non-state actor be able to hide behind the sovereignty of another state and launch attacks against uh, you, the defending state, and you can't respond, right? So measured by a necessity standard, is it not necessary for you to respond because there's no prospect with a state that's unwilling or unable that that continuation of that armed attack, that it will be stopped, it will be forestalled. So you can understand the policy dilemma. The risk, of course, is one a slippery slope, right? right. So at, at what point does, it, does a state stop being unwilling or unable? When will a state reassert its willingness or ability to stave off the activity of that non-state actor? And does that then extinguish the right to self-defense by the attack state? And none of this is settled. And you can end up with the perennial nightmare, which I know Adele has talked about, the idea of self-defense against self-defense. And that's not a place we want to go. (laughs) Right. And as you know, I've written on this topic and I don't want to sort of make this about my writing, so I I won't get into it. But I do think that part of the problem is that, you know, if you want to invoke the unwilling or unable doctrine to exercise the right of self-defense against a non-state actor operating in the territory of another state, 
it's not enough to just simply assert that that state is unwilling or unable. And really, I, I think inability is, is irrelevant. It's really unwilling. And in order to determine that that state is unwilling, you have to ask it to take action or consent to your taking action. And you have to have a discussion and you have to provide evidence that there is a, a threat, that it is necessary to use force. And, then, and only in the event that that state is then, in the face of evidence, unwilling to take action, that you know, I think that you start to get into the territory of having a right to use force against that state. Because you are then able, in the ICJ formulation of attribution, you are able to attribute the actions of the non-state actor to the state. But until that time, I, I'm sympathetic with the idea that the victim state, the, you know, the, the state that is wanting to exercise self-defense is feeling vulnerable and is feeling the threat of the, the armed attack from non-state actors. But that doesn't justify, in my view, the use of force against the state in which they well, have. I, I agree. Yeah, unless, I agree. Yeah. Unless they, you know, there's consultation, there's the production of evidence, there's, and in my view, and this is where you get back to your point that this is a slippery slope, is that the, the states that are invoking the right of self-defense under the unwilling or unable doctrine are simply asserting that there is a threat, that the state was unwilling or unable, and therefore we were entitled to take action. And meanwhile, the state in which the, the bombs are going off may not have been consulted at all, may not have been unwilling or unable. I just simply doesn't know. Yeah, I agree with those procedural prerequisites. And so, and, and also the, the question of fact, right? So first question of fact, is there an armed attack? Second question of fact, is the state either unwilling or unable? And I think inability does matter and we could debate that, but I, I think it does matter. And so there has to be a, a factual prerequisite met, but more than that, I agree with you that there are, there's a procedural requirement, which is, you know, you have your first turn to the territorial state. And only then can you argue necessity when right. I see unwilling or unable as a subset of necessity at best. Right. The question then becomes, and I'm, I'm unwilling to say at that point, there's attribution of the non-state actors conduct to the territorial state, because if there's attribution, then that means you could target the state and its infrastructure in the exercise of your right to self-defense. And I don't think, I don't think you get there. I think you need to make, meet the, you know, the Nicaragua standard of attribution before you can start targeting the state government and its assets per se. So the only door that you've opened when you get to unwilling or unable is the use of force on the territory of that territorial state that's unwilling or unable against the actual attacker. That is the non-state actor. I don't think you can use force against the state or its assets just because that state is unwilling or unable. I mean, the irony would be you've got a state that's that infrastructure is such and its governance is such that it's very weak. It's a failing state. And now because it's a failing state, you get to bomb it. So like you're just creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I really don't want to go to attribution triggered yeah. by an unwilling or unable. Well, we could spend another hour discussing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, and just not to get into it uh, too much, but I, I think the reason I say that ability or inability is not relevant is, of course, it is relevant in the sense that it's precisely because the state is unable that you are going to it and saying, you know, you need to take action and they're not, they're not capable of doing so. But it's not the inability that gives you any justification for the use of force. It's only when, not only are they unable, but when you've approached them and said, look, you need to consent to our taking action to address this threat. When they then say no, well, then they become unwilling. And actually, if they are unwilling, you know, and take a, an affirmative stance against you or using force against the, the threat posed by the non-state actor, well, then actually, I do think you start to cross into the attribution articulated by the ICJ in Nicaragua. And you do get to, if necessary, only if necessary, use force against the state's infrastructure because they truly are now substantially involved in the activities. But as I said, we could, we could spend a whole other hour debating the unwilling or enable doctrine. But before I, I sort of get to your recommendations for reading, I did want to um, circle back to the fact that you are one of the preeminent experts in Canada on Canadian national security and international law as it relates to use of force. So I thought, and, and as I understand it, you're about to publish the next edition. Is it the second or third edition of? Yeah, second edition, much delayed. <laughs> the second edition of, of the, the book on national security law in Canada. And I think that listeners outside of Canada probably aren't as interested in Canadian national security law in and of itself. But I think it is interesting from a comparative perspective. And so maybe mm -hmm. we, I could give you a chance to say a few words about how does 
Canadian national security law or approaches to national security and international peace and security sort of differ from both the United States and some of its allies? Yeah, so thanks for that, Craig. And, and I should indicate that in this second edition, I'm very pleased that uh, my co-author is Leah West, who actually, this is a wonderful experience for me. I've reached the age where Leah West was a former student of mine and, and now is a colleague and a co-author. So it's a terrific experience to co-author with with someone of such a caliber. So the second edition of the big book, it's a, it's a treatise, right? So it's, yeah. it's meant to be beginning to end, stem to stern, here are all the rules that apply to Canadian national security law. So everything from how Canadian national security and intelligence agencies are structured through to a whole bunch of, of thematic issues. So intelligence gathering, information sharing, more kinetic activities, we deal with a menu of different issues. So your question is on, on comparative issues. So of course, you know, Canada is a member of the Five Eyes community. We confront a very similar security environment as does the United States, UK, Australia, New Zealand. We have a very similar legal tradition. Just to situate it for non-Canadian listeners, take the UK, take the US, split it down the middle, and that's pretty much where Canada is, right? So, <laughs> on a whole host of issues. <laughs> on a whole host of issues. So it's a Westminster democracy. It's a parliamentary democracy. But unlike the UK, we've got a constitutionalized Bill of Rights, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which bears a strong resemblance to the US Bill of Rights, but is different, right? It's different in the same way that other constitutional Bill of Rights are different across the world. Um, but that written constitution creates a different legal environment than it does in the UK. And so the protection against search and seizure is constitutionalized in Canada as it is in the US. And that matters a lot in terms of the capacity of intelligence services to collect information within Canada. And so there's a whole bunch of jurisprudence in Canada that deals with privacy interests, the same sorts of issues that arise in the US, but sometimes gives different answers. And it might be fascinating, for example, for a US audience, you know, the, one of the issues that confounded US jurisprudence until comparatively recently, to a certain extent still, is this issue of a third party rule, right? So once a communication is in the hands of a third party, say a telecommunications provider, there's limited, if any, constitutional protections. And I may be misstating the current status of US law, but third party rule has been out there for a long time. Canada's never had a third party rule. And right. so the fact that the content is in the hands of a telecommunications provider does not diminish the constitutional expectations around search and seizure. And so again, this is a very similar principle, but applied differently on, on different facts. And so it's a very interesting exercise looking at where courts have come down on these similar issues. So yes, the book will be out in late September, early October. And on my podcast, a podcast called Intrepid, we're going to do a virtual launch. Uh, Lee and I will address questions and answers people may have about the book and, uh, and we'll, we'll go from there. It's one of these books I have to update every once in a while, right? So it's not nearly right. as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a wonderful resource. And, and for the listeners, I meant to mention at the outset that, I mean, Craig has uh, a podcast, which I think the, the closest analog to uh, an American equivalent would be either Just Security or Lawfare. It's a sort of Canadian national security and international law podcast and blog. And so we'll post a link to that on our website. So, Craig, I mean, I think I've more than exhausted the, the time I asked of you. This was a fascinating and wonderful conversation. But before I let you go, uh, I did want to ask if you would recommend to our listeners three readings, whether books, articles related to this area of the law. Yeah, sure. And, and thanks, Craig. I've enjoyed our time together. So I'm going to go with... Uh... A Tom Roos theme, right? So Tom should be on your show, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm waiting for him to come in and debunk what everybody else has said. <laughs> He's a fantastic. I've had an opportunity to work with him on a project with Yoram Dinstein under the leadership of Yoram Dinstein and John Norton Moore on a manual on You Said Bellum and such a brilliant man and yeah. a brilliant group of people. So a shout out for Tom Roos in terms of his book I mentioned already, The Armed Attack in Article 51 of the UN Charter, which is now a few years old. But uh, a great, a great read, very thorough canvassing of state practice and custom international law. And then the one I enjoy tremendously, and I'll, again, it's a, Tom Ruse was involved, but so, so too Olivier Accordon and Alexandra Hoffe, The Use of Force in International Law, a Case-Based Approach, fantastic book, right? Yeah. So it takes every instance post-war where force was used and applies a similar analytical framework in analyzing it. It's just a tremendous resource. And I will say it was recommended to me by a senior member of our Judge Advocate General's office. So it's got some purchase out there in terms of being credible to practitioners. And it's a great read. I confess that I've been reading a few chapters 
every every week or so, and then COVID came in. So I'm a little bit behind in reading the full book, but I'm most of the way through it. It's a wonderful book. And then my third, just to go with a constant theme here, because this is another project that Tom is involved in, is the Journal on the Use of Force in International Law. And I'm right. not going to single out any article in it. I read that as often as I can. And I always find something new that I knew nothing about once I read that uh, journal. It's, it's also a tremendous resource. And I especially like the compendium of state practice, which is just great, uh, just right. to understand what's been going on over the last calendar year. So those are three fantastic resources in this space that's part of your podcast. Yeah, I entirely agree with all three of those. Those are wonderful recommendations. Listen, Craig, thank you so much for joining us. This has been been fantastic. And, and for listeners, I'm hope, hoping that this will encourage all of them to run out and get the book because the book is itself fantastic. Yeah, don't, don't get it on Amazon. You won't find it on Amazon except ridiculously overpriced secondhand copies. So the, the publisher is Irwin Law, and it's a Canadian right. publisher. And for American audience, yes, they will ship across the border. They're, the books aren't quarantined and cheaper in American dollars. And it is available in electronic form. So we'll put a link to, uh, to that Great. too on, on the website. So Craig, uh, okay. thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to get together once the border is once again open. <laughs> Great, thanks very much, Craig. I've enjoyed this. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. Be sure to check out our next episode in which I'll be speaking with Bona Hathaway of Yale Law School in our first episode that turns the lens inward to look at war powers, the constitutional and legislative constraints on the use of force. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and any other social media you use. Follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine and used on a Creative Commons license.